I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. I'm joined today by Dr. Ellen Half Davis, the rugby pro turned pediatric nurse, turned endurance rower, turned health tech leader. Ellen's career began as a premiership rugby prop forward for Alton and London Wasps, and she also competed for five years at international level for Wales. But life challenges saw Ellen turn to new endeavours, rowing across the Atlantic alongside her friend and colleague, Herdip Sidhu. The 77-day voyage sparked a renewed sense of adventure that Ellen has carried forward, going on to be part of the first all-woman team to row across the Indian Ocean and later sailing the Pacific. In the midst of it all, Ellen gained her PhD, going on to a successful career as a scientific researcher and founder of healthcare innovation platform, Aparito. Ellen, welcome to Changemakers. I, I almost feel exhausted having, having read out your incredible biography there in terms of your, your many uh, life achievements. Pl- pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for, for having me. I, I certainly feel very lucky for all the different life chapters I've had. But let's start with your wonderful name, if I may, Ellen Half. We were just discussing off air. Tell, tell us what it means. Uh, so it's Welsh for light summer. I was born in the hot summer of 76, by all accounts, from my poor mum's uh, sort of recollection of events. It was one of the hottest summer back then. And Ellen is the Welsh word for light. So light summer. Oh, terrific name. Nothing light in your achievements, I think, in terms of in terms of that story. I'd like to start it with a, a quote you gave in a previous interview where you said, believe in yourself and prepare to be Marmite. Tell us about that quote, what it, what it means to you and the message you were trying to share. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. And I have to say, it's something that I'm, I'm having to remind myself to live by that. I think, you know, by human nature, uh, we, we want to be loved and we want to be liked by everybody, right? But somehow, you know, just by being yourself and doing what you do means that you can't win everybody's friendship or favor or support. And I was actually, interestingly, it came to me, I was sort of uh, on a wild trek across Costa Rica with one of my good rugby friends. And we decided then that the advertisers of Marmite don't try to convert the haters, right? They just try to win. Well, make a version of it. <laughs> Con- convert the sort of the lovers to to take more. And um, I realized that, that the life I've chosen and the things I've tried to do means that for those that love and support and champion me, uh, it's it's wonderful. And and I can't worry too much about those that I don't quite sort of float their boats, as it were. I can't even believe or or, or imagine who who those kind of like detractors might be. But but was there a, a time in your, you know, growing up where you were facing that kind of challenge or or indeed trying to fit in yourself around the lives of others. I mean, I'm, trying to, I'm just trying to work out what gets you to the to that Marmite catch line. I was extremely fortunate. I grew up in a very traditional, loving family upbringing in North Wales, you know, on a farm in, in beautiful Snowdonia. The youngest of four by quite a few years. So, you know, my parents had two brothers and then a sister in, in very close sort of uh, succession. And then there was quite a substantial gap before I arrived uh, on the scene as as it were and as I say it was very loving traditional family but being traditional the boys were always on the farm doing the sort of the fun stuff and my sister and I were sort of more inclined to be asked to sort of be doing the cooking and the housework and and those traditional roles at that mm. time I think being the youngest of the four you know everything that I was achieving as a child obviously my parents had already seen all of that being achieved by three other siblings so there was nothing very exciting for them to, to see their fourth child grow up I'm sure but 
but equally it's it's an interesting one you know my my siblings have stayed home within a five mile radius married raised families have got beautiful children of their own and yet my life couldn't be more different Um, I mean you know they I'm just hearing you speak I was thinking you know quite often the advice is you know to sort of take to tread the path less taken if you will in terms of your life choices you've taken not just one path but many paths that have taken you into sport into good causes into into the world of of health and medicine and and latterly into the world of tech i mean this to my mind infers an incredible energy and an incredible curiosity about about the world in terms of you know we don't know each other but my sense is is that curiosity might well be a an important driver for you is that uh, fair to say Absolutely. I mean, I've always got a thirst for new experience, new knowledge, new, new, just new insights. And it's always been part of me. You know, I always want to explore more and, and sort of test new, new adventures or experiences all the time. And, and that's absolutely true. And I think historically, again, I think people would have been more likely to have you know, one lifelong career, right? And you aspire to go along that sort of career ladder in the same structure. I've definitely got more of what you'd call a squiggly career. Some may say it's a squiggly it's a, career. <laughs> <laughs> or you kind of could say it's a jack of all trade, a master of none. But equally, it's just provided such a rich experience and, and sort of, you know, worldview that I've had. How do you deal with what I view as often one of the worst questions you can ask someone, which is what do you do? Now, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you're in. A, you must face those situations where somebody will say, "What do you do?" and you sort of you sort of struggle to think about, well, what part of your life do you answer that with? Yeah, whatever I do, it's stuck with coffee. I think um, it's it, it's a it's very caffeine hard. induced. Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. But and and I think it's it's a it's an interesting question because as society we also like to have labels, right? We like to have identities, so people want to know that you know you're a father, you're a director, you're a lawyer, you're a son. You know, there's all these labels and identities that. Mm people like to put on each other to understand where they come from and then um, some come along and they don't fit the quite the same identities or labels that are more, more commonly used. But it's interesting, when, when you read articles written about you, Ellen, there's kind of, you know, the sort of adjectives you hear are perseverance, endurance, determination, you know, that those, and, and, I, and I would say absolutely, because you can't do the sorts of things that you've done, which we'll get onto in a moment with, without any of those. But it also... I think the thing that I've taken from reading about you is, is, is this sense that you are on a journey of your own imagination as much as you have been on the kind of the physical parts of the world that you visited, that actually this is as much about the person within as the experiences without. What are you learning about yourself on, on this very unique life? Oh, I mean, you know, constantly learning every single day, now more so than ever, you know, there's always something new to learn about myself, how I react to certain scenarios, you know, what what triggers the best out of me and, and absolutely what brings out the worst in me, for, for sure. What but brings guess- out the worst? Just, let's talk, just hold for one second there, if I may. What brings out the worst in you? <laughs> Uh, it's, <laughs> I have to say more recently, you know, building Aparito for the last seven years, sort of building a team, trying to get staff. It, it is quite difficult, if I'm being blunt, to, to work with people that don't have the same either drive 
work ambition, work ethic, passion that keeps up. And I appreciate that's really hard because, you know, I have a certain lifestyle that means I can just live and breathe at 110 miles per hour all the time. And that's not fair on other people's lives that have got other priorities, other issues. But sadly, but, well, I- many, many entrepreneurs would would empathize and identify with that story because, of course, you know, they are so committed. And of course, I you know, the things that you have done from playing sport at an elite level to actually a world of, of adventure is that I guess commitment really does matter in terms of actually how you how you come home safely, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's commitments and it's team players. And, you know, when you've been out there on an ocean and you're kind of completely isolated on your own, you really need your team to sort of up their game to protect you and you up your game to protect them on the rugby field. You never want to be the one that lets the team down. So I guess that sort of, you know, constant drive to do more, to do better, to push harder, is is something that you know again it's back to that marmite thing is it a good thing or is it curse mm. but you know i can definitely see that some people respond to it and, and love to be part of that some people try and want to do it but then i guess get exhausted along the way and and sadly then end up resenting you a little bit because mm. of that constant drive and push that you and even if it's more about myself you know it does obviously convey to other people as well I interviewed Ben Saunders, the polar explorer, recently, and he said that he learned so much about himself when he had to confront the point that I'm finding this difficult. <laughs> you know, that actually, you know, we think of adventurers, you know, putting poles in the ground with flags on them and these sorts of things. It, it strikes me that in many things that you've done, that actually having to face some very difficult moments on on the high seas or in professional sport, becoming an entrepreneur for the first time, working on, you know, big medical questions, is that facing failure or, or at least facing difficulty must be the journeyman of 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 that experience how have you coped with that what what have you learned about yourself I guess yeah I think interestingly there's there's two things that definitely drive me one is the fear of failure and I think I've sort of generally use the the fear of failure as a good driver to keep me going when things are, are tough and also all those people that tell me it can't be done that's the red <laughs> rag is it just just feeling fire, you know adding fuel to the fire to, to to make me go towards it in that regard so i i think i'm i'm mindful of what drives me and what keeps me going in that situation mm. for sure but i guess we also have blind spots and i would generally say this year has been particularly tough because of a combination of of, you know, work and and personal family tragic circumstances, you know, losing loved ones and stuff. And, um, you know, it's it's hard to, to balance all those emotions you go through. Mm. I mean, you mentioned fear of failure. And I'm, you know, I, I can't tell you the amount of leaders, entrepreneurs, high performing athletes that I, I've interviewed over the years where, where that seems to be a driving part of it, the anxiety. I've also come to question how healthy it is in terms of what does that actually do where that fear actually you know I I think there's a difference between the kind of I guess the pit in the stomach that, that, that gets you to just gives you the spark from that you know the issues that that can drive in terms of just how much apprehension how much kind of you know negative energy that can create when you actually fear something like the unknowable of actually not being able to give it your best I mean how do you feel about it it's a really fine line and you know and much like that very 
thin line between what's selfish and one's self-preservation, right? You know, if I look at the, the Atlantic Row, for an example, or Aparito, two quite different scenarios, but actually have a lot in, in similar kind of comparables. The Atlantic Row, you know, we've been sponsored by a godfather of a patient that we'd looked after. So some considerable amount of money to make the campaign possible. And lots of children and families that we were looking after were fundraising for a really good cause. So, you know, my upbringing in Wales and, and, you know, the farm, the farm was very much high workload ethics. It also came with quite a high level of, you know, personal responsibility. If you get given this money, if people gives you this responsibility, then then you have to honour that. And much like Aparito, you know, we have investors, some social impact investors, some, you know, individuals who have invested significant amount of money in Aparito. And at the same time, we are supporting patients and families to try and change the, the healthcare. So both the row and Aparito, while very, very different, they come with a huge sense of, of personal responsibility and obligation that, yes, I put myself in those situations, but it, it you know, to fail when all those people have trusted in me with financial resources, but also trusted me with their data and their health and their, you know, ideas, you know, that that keeps keeps me going if it's healthy or not. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think when I when I look at your life story, there are probably, you know, sorry to this act of reductionism, but I mean there's the Ellen growing up. There's Ellen who competed at an international level at, at, at rugby. There's Ellen who became the rower and the sailor, who then started to work in, in medicine and health and who became the entrepreneur. If those are the chapters of change in your life, is there one part of that where you think the authentic me really came out in terms of the who I am and what I stand for? Yeah, I, I think that the row obviously exposed me to my absolute rawest you know yes we you know we were we were naked rowing but actually we were very exposed in every single sort of <laughs> element as well so I think time at sea really exposes you individually because actually uh, you're exposed against the elements and isolated and that kind of thing so I think being at sea sort of has brought the real me in out and I you know I've commented on quite a few times that I've loved that opportunity to be out at sea in the open seas because it allowed me just to be on my own and content and and while I'm a real kind of classic extrovert and sociable and stuff being isolated on the ocean is is actually a magical place to be I mean and, and bring it to life for us because I mean I've, I've read some of the stories about waves the size of skyscrapers and you know j- just the sheer enormity of a challenge like well you've you've done numerous challenges now but I mean in terms of the personal challenge what you were facing can can you kind of maybe bring that to life for listeners in terms of what it actually means to actually do that kind of thing. Yeah, so the Atlantic Corona, we were in a 24-foot marine plywood rowing boat that was sort of just over a metre above sea level. I mean, there was two of us on the Indian Ocean row that the boat was a couple of feet longer, but the same, you know, height above sea level. And there were four of us in, in that boat. So extremely cramped conditions. And you are very, very low at sea level. You know, you're literally uh, barely above 
of the waterline, as it were. So when these waves come and they crash on top of you, what they essentially do is push you down towards the ocean and you're waiting for the buoyancy of the boat to, to pop you back up. So when the biggest waves were sort of dropping on top of us, you know, we would be submerged up to, you know, sort of well above, because obviously you sat down, you're, you're sat seating, rowing, which means that very quickly the waves submerge you up to sort of chest height and you just have to sit there and wait and wait and hope that eventually the boat pops you back up as opposed to the wave pushing you further and further down and that's physically a very vulnerable place to be and when the weather got too bad we'd obviously sort of go and 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 sit in the cabins but they are you know you can't sit up in them you can't stand up in them you literally crawl in they're more like a coffin and the noise and the banging and the being thrown around in that is is sort of quite (laughs) quite intense too so it's certainly not a not a place for the faint-hearted I'm sat here thinking, why would you want to do that? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I suppose we wouldn't be talking if you'd done it via a Cunard cruise. But I mean, in terms of the, you know, the emotional range that that must inspire. I mean, I mean were you ever scared for your life in the, in that environment? The Indian Ocean was, you know, is I think everybody sort of relates more to the Atlantic Ocean because I guess where we live and what we're familiar with. But actually, the the Atlantic Ocean was far easier um, in terms of the weather. Uh, you know, we were traveling with the prevailing currents. We were traveling with the prevailing winds on the, the the route that we took, and we were leaving relatively small landmass. You know, from Lagomera and stuff. Mm. When we were doing the Indian Ocean, yes, it's a thousand miles longer, but we we were trying to leave a massive landmass like Australia that had this magnetic power and this great big shelf that we had to get across. And the, the weather there was just much harsher. We were going against prevailing currents, all these eddies kind of pushing us back. And, and the weather systems there were just much more, much more aggressive. And as we were approaching Mauritius, you know, we were kind of hit by a, a tailwind of, of a tropical storm. And obviously, unlike sailing, where you try and sort of sail away from the big, big weather, with a rowboat you're a sitting duck because there's no way you can row out of the way of anything so you just have to sort of be ready and, and sit and, and wait for it mm. um, and as we were approaching that again you know Africa massive magnet of land lots of small islands and shoals and you know kind of corals and stuff changing uh, the, the conditions as we were approaching it, it was really challenging time I suppose it's as we pivot into the you know the new chapter of your life the healthcare chapter the aperito chapter do you miss anything you know you talked about i suppose the solitude and the stillness i mean is there are there elements of those experiences that you think i wish i was doing a bit more of that these days oh massively i mean while i've sort of described you know the the the, the risks there is something absolutely blissfully simple at life at sea because you eat, you sleep, you row. And so, you know, it's it's kind of, and and the good thing is that while you don't actually get much sleep because you're physically so tired and because your mind is not racing, thinking about, you know, mm. all the other aspects, then you sleep, the quality of the sleep can be amazing. So the the simplicity of life and the sort of rawness of life is just fantastic out there on the ocean. And whereas, I suppose that makes you very present, does it? Yeah, as- you're just very aware. And and whereas now, you know, we've sort of, as I say, you know, trying to build a med tech digital health company in the middle of a pandemic, 
trying to recruit staff. You know, I've been sat in this chair probably solidly for the last 18 months without using any physical energy or, you know, physical kind of exhaustion at all. But I don't sleep at all well. My mind just can't be rested. And I don't feel... Oh, I think there might be some ocean waves ahead. I don't know. But but let's talk about this, this pivot into into healthcare because you know you've studied it at, at, at PhD level you've practiced it and now you're an entrepreneur as part of it so was the interest in healthcare all, always there or was or was there a or was as with so many parts of, of your life the, the, the pivots you know was there something that suddenly went the light bulb moment of I want to do this yeah I've always wanted to be a children's nurse and my mum was a children's nurse and growing up while well, I joked about wanting to be on the farm with my brothers so in all honesty I, I just wanted to be a children's nurse and there was nothing else that I ever dreamed of of as a child. I mean, the furthest away I got was to be a paramedic instead of a Mm. children's nurse. Why why children? My mum was a children's nurse. I love children. I mean, it's ironic because I obviously had made the choice never to have children of my own, but I I love other people's children. You know, I I went to volunteer for Save the Children in in Lesotho when I was 18. I was babysitting all the local children around me. And I just sort of, you know, had a huge passion for for global child health in that regard and working at Great Ormond Street Hospital probably at the best time ever you know medicine was changing clinical trials were coming through and so I was extremely fortunate to be at Great Ormond Street where amazing clinical trials were coming through and to be part of that and to see the highs and the lows you know when you when you're part of a family's life, when they are facing, you know, a child with life limiting or life threatening illnesses, it's, it really puts life in perspective Mm -hmm. again. So after numerous clinical trials and experiencing what those children and family goes through, um, you know, I tried to sort of change it on a clinical level, was getting frustrated, I couldn't try to change it at an academic level and realized it was going to take me forever, tried to change it at a regulatory level and realized actually the regulatory framework was 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 not as influential as I'd hoped. And therefore, the only thing left to me was to say, okay, well, I, I have to find a legal entity that I can do this myself. I honestly say I'd never heard the word entrepreneur before. You know, I, it was the startups, entrepreneurs, yeah, hadn't crossed my path as a civil servant in clinical academic regulatory world. All I knew was I wanted a legal entity that allowed me to do my own research in my own way mm. and not be constrained by other people's frameworks. And you've got a, a really interesting business, unlocking real world patient data through mobile apps and, and wearable devices. But I suppose this is where, you know, I, I suppose in trying to sort of like look at the, the threads of, of, of your story, this, this does feel like quite a big departure because it feels like a lot of your life has been very experiential, Ellen, that, you know, whether you've been, you know, on, on the wards at Great Ormond Street, whether you've been rowing across oceans, that, that actually been being on the front line of things seems to have mattered in the way that you've lived your life. Of course, now when you're in the world of clinical trials and creating, I guess, meaningful solutions through data, that that feels like quite a step away in in the day-to-day experience, possibly a more meaningful result in terms of the the change you're, you're, you're able to affect. But I just wonder how you personally how your temperament has has dealt with that obviously very different vibe than the one that you've been historically used to. Yeah, no, I, I think you've sort of hit on an, an interesting point. You know, my, my role now is is sort of trying to get other people to to sort of 
you know, I, I can't be there front line doing everything myself now. And it's trying to put foundations in places in place or processes in place or or people in a position to sort of spread the word and do that for me. I think if we then go back to the point of being Marmite and what doesn't bring the best out of me, you know, it's sort of having a vision of what should be done and how it should be done. And then kind of trying to find that balance of, you know, if I can't have it done my way all the time, but equally wanting to make sure that the overall spirit and the vision gets fulfilled, even if it's done in a slightly different way. And yeah, it's more of a backseat driver point of view, I guess. And yeah, we all know backseat drivers are never very popular, are they? No, well, has that that sporting you know, sort of experience where you've played team sports, you've done things as crews, you've done things. I mean, does that cross over into business when you're looking at your multiple stakeholders from your investors to your your team to the sorts of people that you work with? I mean, is there there an experience that you've had that you can take forward and work with? Yeah, I think, you know, rugby is the key part. If you think of rugby as a sport, you know, if you look at 15s rugby, it's, it's the best analogy of life, right? You've got people of all different sizes shapes skills abilities but you need your prop forward and your winger in equal measures to to, to make a strong rugby team right one of the analogies i've used a bit about startup or small company is it's swapping from being a 15s rugby player to be a sevens player so you're expected to cover the same same amount of pitch but Mm. all of a sudden everybody runs faster than you and when you mess up you haven't got more people huddled around you to sort of cover it up so and, more, and more jobs and more jobs to do and more jobs today and and that just brings you know that that pushes some people to to sort of up the game but other people do find that exposure quite difficult and you know we we all know that athlete that loses their temper behaves badly because that pressure gets too much of, of being in that environment but rugby has been phenomenally important in terms of kind of overall appreciation of everybody's skills and contribution to a great team whereas on the you know on the Atlantic or the Indian or even sailing the Pacific you know when you had a sailor or a rower that wasn't doing very well that day you equally can sub them off and say you're you're subbed off the boat for the next two days we're going to sub somebody else on because you're not really doing very well so there was a slight different awareness of well okay we're stuck with this team we just need to try and (laughs) Make make do's of the team when we're all going through various high schools. Yeah, you can't come and walk the plank. I mean, now listen, we are unfortunately almost out of time. But last question for you: I think this kind of "what's next" element is something that I guess listeners will sort of think about when they, when they hear you speak. But it's also a question that your website poses. It, it says that with such a thirst for adventure, it always leaves everyone around her wondering: what will Ellen do next? What's the answer to your own website's question? <laughs> yeah, it depends if mum's going to hear this or not. It's, you know, I I have to admit that Aparito have become all-consuming. You know, my husband and I, so my husband works full-time on Aparito now with me. So it's become, a, you know, a 24-7 inseparable part of our lives at the moment. And separately to a game of rugby where you've got 80 minutes and you've got a final whistle or separate to rowing across an ocean where you've got an island that's a destination and a finishing line the problem that we are having with Aparito is is that it there is no fixed destination and there 
there is no, you know, final whistle. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. And and at some point, you know, my husband and I are going to have to make some some grown up decisions about how far we take it and and when do we call personal final whistle on it and allow other people then to to sort of take over the helm. Uh, my husband and I, he's fifteen to his time, and he he really wants us to go back to. Mm. You know, the reason we got together was offshore sailing, right? We we've raised something like twenty five thousand miles two handed offshore across Atlantic. You know, fastnet three times, round Caribbean island, rag ribbon and island. So we've got a few a few big races that we've we've promised each other that that we were going to do. But equally, I'm considerably younger. I feel that there's a bit of a balance to be had, maybe. Oh well, well, you know, as, as it was once famously written. Second star to the right and straight on till morning. Ellen, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. What a pleasure to interview you. Thank you so much. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating?